And welcome again to the KI Prime podcast. I'm your host, Alina Jenkins. And in this episode, I'm speaking to Sandra Montero. Sandra is a scientist in the McMaster University Faculty of Health Sciences Programme for Education, Research, Innovation and Theory. It's known as MERIT. She has a faculty appointment in the Faculty of Health Sciences, Department of Medicine, Division of Education and Innovation, and a second appointment to the Centre for Simulation-Based Learning as the Director of Simulation Scholarship. She is known internationally for her research programme on clinical reasoning and her expertise in measurement principles and competency-based assessment. Sandra, welcome. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm really excited and interested to hear about your area of research and what brings you here to Stockholm and the KO Prime Fellowship. Ah, well, those may be two different things. I'd like to think that what brings me here is the quality of my work. Uh, I think what started everything was my interest in human behavior. From a young age, that led to a PhD in psychology. And through a series of somewhat unfortunate and very fortunate events, I uh, ended up in the field of medical education, working with one of the giants in the field at the time. uh, And we created a very successful collaboration looking at clinical reasoning and breaking down some assumptions and being kind of iconoclastic towards some popular notions about uh, the right way to think and the correct way to think about diagnosis and, and reduce errors. And that's where my thesis came from, is just sort of testing some of those assumptions to really demonstrate you, meant, you mentioned a giant. Yes. And please give us the name of that giant that you... Yes. So Jeff Norman, uh, he is a prior Karolinska Career Award Prize winner and my PhD supervisor and good friend as well. So we've been working together a little over 10 years now, just exploring uh, really just assumptions, popular assumptions that get out into literature and then start to influence the way people want to design education, but you know could actually be big distraction uh, or, or actually lead to a waste of, of time where, uh, where the focus is trying to improve thinking, uh, which from my perspective as a cognitive psychology is just not possible. So it's not, not possible to improve thinking. The reason I say that is that thinking, the way that I define it, thinking is a byproduct of what you know. Uh, so you can improve what you know. You can improve the complexity of interpretations of what you know. You can improve the breadth of that knowledge and like, you know, get perspectives from other people. And then thinking just happens (laughs) with that. Yeah, I'd never thought of it in that way. I want to dig more. You've mentioned assumptions a couple of times and these assumptions that we have. So tell me more about that. Sometimes I take a very historical perspective to my work, I get a little interested in sort of going down the trail of where do these ideas originate? Um, And I think humanity, well, certain cultures have always been drawn to the rational human and the rational thought and differentiating human beings from animals, perhaps, or uh, trying to elevate humans to some ideal state where 
where we're cap- we're considered capable of very analytical, higher level logical thought, and that is absolutely true. But the way we function on a daily basis, indeed, the way that we stay alive, and the reason we've actually survived on this planet for the most part, is more of the intuitive, uh, common sense, and pattern recognition uh, capacity that we have because our environment is complex. And if we had to stop and analyze it every second, we wouldn't, we would just all come to a halt. We take a lot for granted. Just even, you know, I walked in this room. I, I know how to greet you. I didn't have to think about that. So if those were things I had to actually stop and work out in the moment, things would move very slowly. So I believe the same is true in healthcare. If, uh, clinicians were to constantly second guess or think of different alternatives in terms of proceeding, then patients would be waiting to be cared for much longer than, mm-hmm. than they even are now. As I understand, you, you know, you're talking about the differences in the way, in the way our brain works from the, the neocortex, the limbic system, going back to what someone's called the croc brain, so the, the brain stem. And, and I know that I've, I've read Thinking Fast and Slow, Daniel Kahneman, and I know that's something that you've unpicked. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And his, and his his idea of dual dual brain theory. So I just wondered if you could you could expand more on that. Yes, the way I understand the origins of some of his work was uh, largely observational, and um, in wanting to provide some models to predict future success of people as leaders. And then there's a line of research that that kind of stemmed from there, and. When I explain the way my research fits into clinical reasoning in contrast to the influence of Daniel Kahneman's work and and others who support that system two model of thinking, um, you know, some people propose that as the more evolved aspect of the human brain, uh, whereas the system one sometimes is denigrated or like reduced down to that instinctive animal Mm -hmm. stimulus response uh, mode of thinking, which tends to then just get uh, diminished and thought to be less mm. evolved. Uh, except that is the beauty of the, the human mind is to be able to connect things in an intuitive way. And for me to appreciate that the brain is doing that in parallel subconsciously all the time in, in your dreams and just as you're working on other things, there's, there's uh, thinking and uh, knitting together of ideas happening behind the scenes. So you can't control that. Uh, and so, you know, going back to this idea, if you can't fix thinking, I have no control over the subconscious uh, aspects of my knowledge that are being connected and thoughts. So system one and system two, they're labeled as such, I think, because, you know, one came first and then two is that more advanced part of our brain. And that's kind of moved in a direction to recommendations that people should rely more on the system two analytical thought process. Um, and so the way that I situate my work is very much there's a difference in research paradigms that would lead you to the different conclusions. Studying the mind and memory and learning and thinking um, as a cognitive psychologist, when we're interested in expertise and how people have achieved that, we tend to study experts. Uh, and so most of my studies, uh, largely involve clinicians who have a lot of training, and then I try to measure that expertise or what they've learned. And if I want to understand the influence of various factors, then it's all to do within that design. But they come in with a large amount of knowledge. Mm-hmm. There are other lines of research where the research paradigm is to bring 
novices. So just everyday people come in and then they are presented problems that may be from a particular profession or expertise. They could be medical problems. They could be engineering problems or logistics problems. And then the experimenter's goal is to manipulate certain aspects of how the information is presented to see how that influences the decisions they make. And to me, that's completely, uh, to me, that's completely changing. Like that's not reality. To me, that doesn't transfer to how the world works because we don't go insert ourselves into conversations we don't nothing about typically, uh, and try to make important decisions that way, uh, we we do tend to stick within our expertise. Uh, so I think it's important to consider to consider that when we're making these theories and recommendations for, for medical education, certainly. Yeah. You said that you've been working for 10 years with, with, with Jeff, and we'll talk about him a little bit later because he was one of my most favourite interviewees on the Care Prime podcast. Um, so we'll mention that. Yeah, so we'll, we'll come back and, and talk about him in a moment. But I'm just interested in the developments that you've made over those 10 years. Where have some of your challenges been? What is it you're trying to do moving moving forward? Oh, there's a uh, number of ways to answer that question. I think personally, development has been exponential. Uh, I was moving from experimental psychology where we worked with very simple stimuli to measure very simple stimulus response patterns uh, into an applied field that was much more rewarding. So just the personal growth, that connection with Jeff and the introduction to this field's been life-changing. Career-wise, I began to appreciate the value of what I brought as a cognitive psychologist, being able to work with people to help to design experiments, uh, work with them to understand what, what theory and hypotheses are, and also the skills that I brought as a in, in measurement as a, I, I don't like to refer to myself as a statistician, but I think that's the word people would understand. To me, it connotes a, a, a rather uh, strict way of thinking about, about numbers, and I don't, I don't subscribe to that. But um, I definitely understand the theories of measurement and, uh, and, and ways of analyzing that. So I'm able to draw on that in my, in my work with, with people in the health sciences. And moving forward, what are you hoping to to achieve? Oh, you're asking the tough questions. I feel like that's what I'm here to <laughs> figure out in this, in this program, this training program. I think I'd like to have some, my work to have some meaning. I get that experience of reward and, and meaningfulness when I work with people individually. So seeing the growth of whether it's a junior clinician educator or a graduate student or someone new to the field of research uh, and being able to give them some guidance or open their eyes to a new area of the literature, that's very rewarding to see their growth. You know, one thing that uh, Jeff always made clear that it was a, a point of pride that he was able to not only, you know, find good talent, but then nurture it and actually help those people get into their careers. That was a responsibility uh, that he took seriously. And I very much identified with that. So I in some ways, try to pay that forward, I think, with people that I work, but I genuinely do love that aspect of it. Ideally, later in life, I'm having, I'd love to see some broader impact, I guess, if I'm able to to change the way we think about medical education or, or um, healthcare design, but we'll have to see what the future holds. <laughs> 
we, we need to have a little chat about Jeff. Um, so I okay. interviewed him oh, two and a half years ago. It was during COVID, so it had to be via Zoom. But he just made me laugh. Yes. He made me laugh. He was so, he was so, so funny. What's it like to work? With, with someone like Jeff, as you say, he's a giant, he's a legend. Yes, yes there's, a lot of, there's a lot of complexity to that. I will say that our early days, we, we clicked, I, I, I suppose, our interests, our way of thinking about the important problems to solve. And I, I've told this story a few times with, with colleagues here, but I went from struggling to develop some ideas within experimental cognitive psychology to completing a PhD in one year. By getting all the data and having all of that work done and, and moving on to write it up to defend uh, in a very quick time because I think the applied setting and that perceived value of it to to real people, mm-hmm. if, that, if that makes sense, really just drove me forward. I believe that what he enjoyed was what I brought to the conversations as a psychologist and, you know, having studied the mind, whereas... I'm sure he told this in his in his interview, but his origins start with physics, and and he found his way into medical education because he was starving. <laughs> really, <that was> so <laughs> I remember, yeah, something along those lines. I'm using different words, and yeah, so I think he's always been drawn into psychology, but just didn't have the formal training. So we uh, definitely clicked on that level, and our approach to design and uh, storytelling has just sort of been very similar. And the collaborators that we have have been like very great collaborators, just genuine people and very bright. So we all support each other. It's not just been, you know, Jeff and I, there's been a a whole team of people working with us through the years. So for me, it's an absolute joy. And uh, I know I can trust him and I always would go to him with, you know, certain challenges Mm -hmm. as a junior faculty and trying to navigate some of the politics and and even now, he still loves the challenge of uh, trying to write a paper or analyze some data, at, even though he's moved to spending most of his time with his hobbies. <laughs> I just want to come back to something you mentioned. You said that you were you discussing and working on storytelling. I work in business communication, and that's a really big part of how we communicate with each other is telling stories. I just wonder if you could expand a bit more on, on, oh, uh, on yes. storytelling. Um, something that I really enjoy sharing with with junior clinicians particularly because I feel like they they come to the world of research or experiment design with some idea that they have to be objective. They have to somehow step outside of themselves and not let their feelings or ideas influence what they're going to do. And they have to approach everything in this almost robotic way. And then, you know, I kind of try to develop a relationship with them so that eventually I can kind of tell them there's a secret to all this. It's actually all just really good storytelling. So if you're going to design an experiment, it actually helps to have a story in mind that you want to tell. Like you've seen this story either in your work or you see this thread of a story in in papers that you've read. And so you're interested in, that leads to an interest in designing a particular research project to then continue or build on that story. That usually surprises them because that's not what formal science or scientific methods or, you know, any of those formal teachings would have you think about research. But all of it is storytelling, uh, even in the purest of disciplines, right? There's, mm-hmm. You've got to draw the reader in, otherwise no one's going <laughs> to publish your work if you just present them with boring old numbers. And sometimes the numbers 
don't tell the story you want. And so you have to really talk to the numbers over uh, over a while and uh, decide what what aspect is is interesting enough to share. From from the world of psychology, of, of course, it makes perfect sense, this idea of, of telling stories. It's how we connect with each other. But you're right. I would imagine that a lot of people in the world of science and medicine just go, well, it's facts. It's facts and it's data. So how, how do you help people that you work with and, and students to kind of overcome that kind of fear of, oh, oh I, just, I, I just want to talk about the facts, just want to talk about the data? I don't know. I don't know that I necessarily have interpreted it as fear as opposed to that's just the way they understood it was supposed to be and they hadn't allowed themselves uh, like it was always there. It's not that they weren't able to think creatively or subjectively about it. They just thought they were supposed to share it <laughs> with anyone or that wasn't they nobody really wanted to hear what they thought about it. So I actually think it's quite freeing. Uh, it's interesting you use the word fear. So I, mm. I may have to actually think about that a little bit. But I think it's more that it was limiting before and they didn't really appreciate how much so because they just thought that was the right way and they just had to learn to be that way. And so that, I think, is part of the reward is is allowing them to just relax and just explain things. Uh, I think the flip side of that is uh, another reason I love working in, in the applied field of, of medical education is hearing them describe their challenges, whether it's with patient care or education or assessment, whatever it is that they're focused on, uh, they bring to me the the context they bring to me the complexity of the stories and the challenges uh, and then what i try to do is link theories or you know research uh, findings to that to then connect it and think of what would we do next cuz most theories from even uh, you know the applied sciences uh, most theories that come from psychology sociology they don't necessarily speak to the real person and they don't they rarely translate into something practical that you can do so i really enjoy getting a feel for the actual you know workplace challenge let's say or the education challenge and then working backwards to to think of how to explain that or build theory into it yeah i'd love to ask you how you feel about being here in stockholm for the care prime fellows 2023 and what that means for you and your and your research? I think one day I'll I'll <laughs> I will be able to give you a very detailed answer to that. At the <laughs> moment, it's surreal. I do feel like I am watching myself uh, a little bit from from the outside and and seeing myself go through the motions of interacting with all of these very smart people from all over the world. And I'm I think I'm trying not to think about it too much because I I'm not sure that I'd be able to actually function. But I mean, I'm in, I'm in a place where Nobel laureates come in. Uh, it's within an institution that's, you know, honored within that context. They have an influence on uh, world world leaders and the future of research. And they've invited me here for the reasons they they know. Um, and yeah, I think I I can't think about that right <laughs> too closely. So. Obviously, it's an honor. It's an absolute joy. I think at this moment, it feels like that's I could retire tomorrow, and that would be absolutely wonderful to have achieved. Uh, you know, this this point. I'm not sure that it, there would be much more to to necessarily aim for, other than just doing 
good research. But yeah, I think maybe two months from now, I'll, it, it'll, it'll strike me and I'll be in shock that I actually went through all of this. Uh, Sandra, it's been really lovely to speak to you. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much, Elena. This has been a, a joy. And thank you to everybody at home for listening. We'll be back again very soon with another episode of the KR Prime podcast. For now, goodbye. Goodbye.